with you again today. It's been just a little over a year, thank you, and uh, that I was here, and I just really enjoy, uh, I enjoy your pastors, I love them, I enjoy this place, and so I'm just really very blessed to be here. Uh, I am the pastor of Fairhaven Foursquare Church in Bellingham, Washington, in the south side of Bellingham, and we've now been there for about 10 years. Uh, and so uh, our little church is still very much a little church, and we've got uh, an average Sunday, we'll, we'll probably not have more than 15 to 20 people. Um, actually, 20 is like when we're doing cartwheels, like we're so excited to have 20. It's usually closer to 15, 16. Um, and uh, we meet in the evening, so I'll be, I'll be preaching again tonight. Um, I spared you. To, you know, our church, we're going through Revelation, so I wasn't going to come to another church and start bringing down fire and brimstone. So, um, so we are preaching and, and looking at just one of the most beautiful, like the gem of the New Testament. This, um, this passage is called the Christ Hymn, and, um, and it, is, it is, in fact, very, very beautiful. Um, This is, this is in the center of the book of Philippians. We call it a book, but it's a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. And uh, the book of Philippians is known for a few things. Does anybody know what the main theme that Philippians is known for? Anybody, any Bible scholars out there? Joy. It's known for joy. It is the joy book. People love the book of Philippians. Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 14 times in four chapters. So it is, it is a joyful book. But one of the things a lot of people don't realize, it is also a book that has a really rich theology of suffering. And that fascinates me, to take the theme of joy and pair it with the theme of suffering and to put it in the same book. That just, that blows me away. Um, in fact, I think that's what I'm going to do my thesis on, but I haven't decided for sure yet. I haven't had it approved yet. Um, but in this book, as Paul talks about suffering and he talks about joy, there's another, there's another theme that comes forward, and that is the state of mind. Um, to have joy in the midst of suffering does require a certain state of mind. And uh, over the, the whole work of this letter, he is reminding the church in Philippi that they need to have the mind of Christ. They need to think differently. The word mind or think is used 12 times in these four chapters. But as we talk about theology, that falls kind of flat when we don't have the context in the story and we don't know how that affects our lives and the lives of the people in this book. So I want to tell you a little bit just about the story of the Philippian church. You ready for story time? Okay, all right. So here's the story of the Philippian church. It was uh, the, the city, first of all, in Philippi was a Roman colony. What that meant was as a colony that was recognized as Roman colonies, they had some privileges, um, tax privileges, because they were known as a colony of Rome and not just like a land that Rome had taken over, right, and was, was uh, demanding a, uh, uh, an offering from. So... They were important people, they thought of themselves. They were on the road, uh, the Via Ignatia, which is the road from Rome towards the east. So they were kind of this entryway into the east. 
and, uh, and they thought quite a bit of themselves. Although they were not a big city, they were about 10,000 people. So I looked it up and the population of Burlington is about 9,702. I don't know how they got down to the two, but. So Philippi was probably similar to Burlington. Mount Vernon was 35,404, so a third of the size of Mount Vernon, about the size of Burlington. That's the size of Philippi. So if you can imagine, when you go to the grocery store, you probably run into people you know, right? In Philippi, people knew each other. It was a small city. But it was also a city where status was very, very important. Very, very important to the people. They lived their life trying to um, be a higher rank than they were born at. Um, this was true of a lot of Roman colonies. Uh, anybody know anyone who's like an influencer on Instagram or anything like that? I'm so far from being that cool that I, I don't know anything like that. But, but this, that's the mindset. These people wanted to status up, right? They wanted more people, more uh, below them, and more people honoring them. And it was an honor-shame culture. And uh, there would have been different tiers in the society. It was actually pretty complex, the, the tiered society that they lived in. They had, uh, there were the slaves on the bottom rung, and they were probably about 20% slaves in the, in the city of Philippi. And uh, above that would be the freed people, the freed men and freed women who had been slaves but were um, emancipated. That was actually a fairly common thing to set your slaves free. But what a lot of people don't know is once you're set free, you still serve the same master. You just serve as a, a free person. And so it's a little different. You, you enter into what they call a client-patron system, where you're, you're the client and, and the master is the patron, and you serve that person. And then there was, of course, economic status, just like we actually have today, economic status. There was a political status. There was, you know, the the important family's lineage kind of status. Um, there's male-female status. All these statuses are in there. And people, it was like junior high lunch tables. Like, you wanted to know the cool kids, right? You wanted to be the one that was um, connected. If you were a client, you wanted your patron to be important. Your patron would have connected you to other people in the businesses around you. The people in Philippi were actually very common people. Most of the people that were in the church, that is. Oops, sorry. Um, in the church, we probably had a majority of kind of the, what we would call blue-collar workers. Just your average, ordinary people. They would have been people who were shop owners, who, um, who sold leather goods, who sold uh, wooden things, who, who were fishermen and sold their, their fish in the market. They would have been the, uh, the weavers. And the way they worked is they had guilds, uh, kind of like our unions, I guess, maybe. Um, you would join the weaver's guild or the fisherman's guild or the tent maker's guild. So these were normal, average, everyday people just like us. And, but living in a society where the status that they were in was very, very important to them. And in comes Paul and Silas. You can actually read more of the story of the start of this church in Philippi in Acts 16. So Paul and Silas come into Philippi, and they start the church with a woman named Lydia. 
Lydia led a house church, and uh, after Paul and Silas had, had shared the gospel with her, her and her household, which would have included her slaves and her freed people and her, her relatives, uh, were baptized, and then she began holding church in her house. There's another amazing story in Philippi. As Paul and Silas stayed there for a while, I imagine the church grew a little bit slowly. Um, this was a pagan culture where they worshipped um, the pantheon of gods, and they also had the imperial cult, which was worshipped to the emperor and the emperor's family. So Caesar uh, would have been worshipped. And so um, in this church, this little house church, uh, Paul and Silas and Lydia, they were all gathering together and they were leading. And then Paul and Silas went out into the town and were telling more people about Jesus and they got themselves in trouble. They got themselves in trouble when they cast out a slave uh, demon out of a slave girl. And they got thrown in prison. And some of you have probably heard the story about Paul and Silas singing and praying and in prison and how the ground shook. There was an earthquake and the doors flew open and the people were coming out of the prison and the Roman guard was about to kill himself because, of course, if you lose all your prisoners, you're dead in Rome. And he said, no, don't, don't kill yourself. We're here. And, he, and the prison guard was amazed that they wouldn't have just fled and left him high and dry. And they shared the gospel, and the prison guard gets saved, and his whole household becomes baptized. And so you can imagine, now I'm a church planter. I planted a church 10 years ago. It was small, it's still small. <laughs> and there's all sorts of strategies for building a church, right? There's, I haven't done most of them. Um, but I gotta say, Something like an earthquake and prison doors flying open and the people of God being set free, that's going to start a church, right? Right? I mean, that's going to start something going when God shows up and does a big thing. So I'm not really hoping that the Bellingham jail flies open, but I am waiting for that move of God. So, um, but that's something that is, is the part of the, the DNA of this church. In Philippi. This is the people he's talking to. Common, ordinary, average, everyday people trying to get a little higher in the ladder of life. Probably not so different from a lot of the people we know or even ourselves. A church that explodes with a miracle of God that is talked about far and wide. You can imagine the joy of this church, right? You can imagine how it would have grown and exploded and people would have been excited about Jesus. And as Paul writes this letter, something has happened to their joy. When they started out, they were growing. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. God had answered their prayers, saving Paul and Silas. They were full partners in the gospel mission. And when Paul talks about partners, he's talking about money. Just so you know, when he talks about partners in the gospel, he's talking about people who are helping to send the missionaries out and partners who are praying, but people who are really invested in saying, this is the kingdom of God, and I want to be a part of it. And they were full partners, and they were full of joy, and they were excited to be on mission with Paul, the man, right? And something happened, and trouble came. And they started facing persecution. Now, I told you that there was a t they were in a town where the town worshipped this, this pantheon of the, the Greek Roman gods, right? And they worshipped the, the imperial cult. Well, these 
blue-collar tradespeople who were part of the guilds started having trouble doing business because to be a part of the fish catcher's guild or the weaver's guild or the tent maker's guild, you went to guild meetings held in temples and you had to pay tribute to the gods associated with that particular guild. And if you didn't, you weren't a part of that guild. Imagine all your business contacts gone like that. How would you survive? How would you pay the bills? How would you feed your family? That's what they were facing. You couldn't, in that day also, much business was done through the home. Um, many, many Greek houses, Greco-Roman houses, would be structured in such a way that you would, you would go in and there would be an atrium in the front, kind of a, an entryway, and you would greet whoever was running the household at that time, whether it was a slave or whether it was um, the woman of the house or, or whoever was running things, they would greet you. And then if you passed the, them, you would be moved into kind of a, a waiting room where the, the person who was in charge of whatever business, their homes were their business. They, they were their shops. They didn't have a house and then have a shop over here. Their homes were their business. You'd meet the, the shop, the household owner and the shop keeper, right? All the same person. And you would do business there. And as you moved back through the house, depending on the size of the house, you would get closer and closer to family quarters, eating quarters, and then you would have kitchens. Um, so that is how they were structured. And do you know what was in that atrium to get through the front door? The household gods. If you didn't pay tribute to the household gods, you didn't get to be a part of that business connection. You didn't get to go to that shop. So they were in a system where to worship Christ alone meant that they were cut off from the economic system of their day. And they were facing persecution. They were facing status loss. They no longer could stay in their same patron-client relationships if their patron wasn't a Christ follower. Their patron would not connect them to all the important connections they needed to have if they were not following the same God as their patron. So they had, they had status loss and they had financial loss. And they were starting to wonder, is the gospel really good news for us? How is this good news when I become a Christian and all of a sudden I'm left without an income? I'm struggling to stay alive, to feed my children. They were suffering. They were discouraged. And in the midst of suffering and discouragement, within their body of believers, division started happening, as often does when things aren't going well, right? We've probably seen a little bit of that in our world and in the, the bigger church of today. Things get hard, and people have different ideas on how to handle hard, and then they start bickering amongst themselves, and there's division. And so Paul writes this letter at a time when actually the financial gift that they had been giving was renewed. They had gone through the season where they were full partners and then they could not give to him because they had lost their economic means. And they had finally scraped up enough 
to follow through on a promise and to give money to him while he was in prison, which when you're in a Roman prison, you need somebody to give to you because they don't give you food in a Roman prison. They don't give you clean clothes. You're lucky if you're not chained to the wall. And so finally, the church in Philippi had sent to Paul a gift um, that provided for food for him. It provided for clothing for him. And they sent it through a man named Epaphras. Or Epaphroditus? Epaphras. Anyway. E. We'll call him E. E went and met Paul. Sometimes I have little brain freezes. E went and met Paul, and he brought the gift, and he actually, he got really sick, and that's part of what's in the letter too. But uh, Paul hears from him, and he hears how the church is doing, and he hears the struggles, and he hears about the arguments. And he writes to them at a time when their financial gift is renewed, and he hears their troubles, and he empathizes with their suffering And he calls himself, in the introduction to this letter, a slave. He said, I am Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He is identifying himself as the lowest of the low and identifying himself with the suffering that they are facing. It's shocking language. It was shocking language then, just like it's shocking to us now. And Paul used it on purpose to bring a shocking effect to say, I am the slave of Christ Jesus. He's trying to tell them something about what kind of a status really matters. And he prepares them for the worst in this letter. He talks about how he might die. Many scholars think he's preparing them to live a life without him and to keep going. And he talks about different Christian leaders who have come in, and some with good intentions, some with bad, but he he talks about how the gospel will carry on. And he embraces the suffering. And he does it with joy, which is mind-boggling, right? Mind-boggling. He is in prison, and he is saying, yet I rejoice. He gives them some examples of how to live with Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are all kind of the peripheral ideas around this Christ hymn that I want you to understand. He gives them examples of himself as the slave of Christ in prison for Christ. He gives examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then he talks about uh, Euodia and Syntyche, uh, two women who are his co-workers, who, who he says also have suffered with me in the cause of Christ. And and these two women, it seems, are fighting. There's some dissension. And he wants it resolved because when leaders fight, it's not good for the people who follow, right? And so he wants these women to get on the same train of thought. They're divided, and he wants unity. But how is that possible? Well, he says the way that you have that, is you have to have the mind of Christ. You have to. It's not this person winning that person over to their thoughts or that person winning the other to their thoughts. It's you both must have the mind of Christ. To put on Christ. The one who did not shy away from suffering, 
but who embraced it as the path to joy and the glory of God. So what I want to do is I want to read this again, but I want you to put yourself in the story first. Can you understand a church once filled with laughter and joy, now filled with fighting and fear? Can you empathize with the people who were once generous givers, but now were unable to tithe or offer support? Can you put yourself in the place of those whose fire and light had once burned bright, but now we're just struggling to keep the faith and hold on? If you can empathize with any of that, if you can put yourself in any of that, I want you to do that. I, I want you to enter into a place where you acknowledge life is hard. They're feeling the weight. And I think a lot of times the people here, we are probably feeling the weight too. Life is hard, right? And into this world, Paul writes this hymn. I want to read it again with this mindset as these people who are struggling and just trying to hold on, about ready to let go. Paul says this to them, and he says it to us. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited something to be held on to. But instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at how this hymn is structured. It shows this progressively downward path. It starts with Christ being with God, equal in status. In the beginning, he was in the form of God. And yet, he let go of equality. He relinquished his status. Jesus Christ relinquished status and emptied himself being in the form of a slave. He humbled himself. These are the things Paul is encouraging the church to do. Let go of status. Empty yourself. Humble yourself. And then we get down to that turning point. He humbled himself to death and even death on a cross. Now that the cross is the turning point and the cross, we should note, isn't just about a crucial, uh, a, a cruel painful death. It is that. It is a cruel, painful death. But you know what? The Romans were pretty good at torture. There were lots of ways that they could have tortured Jesus. There are lots of ways they could have killed him. They could have made it long and painful. But death on a cross had a very specific purpose. It was painful. It was effective, 
but it was also an item that was made to bring shame on the one who died on it. The cross was the most shameful way to die. And Jesus submitted to that. He let go of the Godhood that he had and got down low to be with us and took on the most shameful posture and position any man could ever have. And because of this, God raised him and gave him victory over death. All the tongues are now going to confess that Jesus is Lord. They are not singing the praises of Caesar. They are singing the praises of Jesus. As N.T. Wright says, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Gave him the name above all names. Now that would have said something to the church in Philippi. The name above all names in their culture was Augustus. The first emperor after the Roman Republic ended and the imperial period began was Caesar Augustus. But in every Caesar that came after that, there was a naming ceremony, recognizing the new king, and he would be named Augustus. But it is not Augustus that is the name above all names. It is Jesus. And all the people will bow. All the people will swear, swear fealty to this king. God has exalted him. He has restored his status with God. And the final result is that God is glorified because Jesus was willing to empty himself for our sake and to be lifted through humility, through suffering, self-giving love poured out. Christ descends and is lifted to the highest place. And Paul invites the Philippians to have this mind. Now that seems pretty amazing that Jesus would do that. And I don't even know if it's possible for us to have that kind of a mind, to have that kind of a love. But Paul invites it. The mind that says, my personal status is not to be considered. The mind that says, I will serve out of love. The mind that's willing to wash feet. The mind that says, you go first. The mind that sees suffering as a path to joy and serving as a path to the glory of God. That's the mind that Paul invites both the Philippian church and us as a body to embrace. This is what Christ has done for us. This is what we are invited to do for others and for him, to give of our very selves in love. It is the only way to endure in faith. 
It is the only way to find true and lasting joy, and it is the only way a diverse people can find unity. Brothers and sisters, we must have the mind of Christ. We must live and breathe and dwell in him, the servant king. In this way, we will see the world in a different light. And in the midst of the pain, Paul gives the church this additional piece of advice. In Philippians 4, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He wants them to be transformed in their way of thinking, in their life. He is encouraging them and us to retrain our minds and to think differently. We do this first and foremost by looking to Jesus, looking to the cross, and pressing forward for the joy and the glory of God. I want to finish with a poem by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton. I was first introduced to it by my uh, professor, um, Dr. Nijay Gupta. He, he shared this in his commentary on the book of Philippians, and I have fallen in love with this poem. It is Gloria in Profundis. Now, a lot of us have probably heard the phrase Gloria in Excelsis, right? We sing it at Christmas time. That's glory in the highest. Gloria in Profundis is glory in the lowest. And it says this. There has fallen on earth for a token, a God too great for the sky. He has burst out of all things and broken the bounds of eternity. Into time and the terminal land, he has strayed like a thief or a lover, for the wine of the world brims over. Its splendor is spilt on the sand. Who is proud when the heavens are humble? Who mounts if the mountains fall, if the fixed stars topple and tumble, and a deluge of love drowns all? Who rears up his head for a crown? Who holds his will for a warrant? Who strives with the starry torrent when all that is good goes down? For in dread of such falling and failing, the fallen angels fell, inverted in insolence, scaling the hanging mountain of hell. But unmeasured of plummet and rod, too deep for their sight to scan, outrushing the fall of man is the height of the fall of God. Glory to God in the lowest, the spout of the stars in spate where thunderbolt thinks to be slowest and the lightning fears to be late. As men dive for sunken gem, pursuing we hunt and hound it, the fallen star has found it in the cavern of Bethlehem. That gets me when all that is good goes down. Every time I get to this one line, I tear up, outrushing the fall of man is the height of the fall of God. I get this kind of, okay, this doesn't sound very poetic, but this mission impossible vision in my head uh, where I'm falling out of a plane and I'm flailing, you know, arms and legs just going. And out of the corner of my eye, I see 
someone diving to go lower. And it's Jesus. And he's diving to get to the bottom first so that he can hit and take the brunt of the fall and catch me. This is what our Jesus has done for us. He has dove faster than we can fall ourselves, and I can fall pretty fast. And he has taken the fall. And he has stopped us from ultimate destruction. He has set us free from the power of sin and death and given us life. Outrushing the fall of man is the height of the fall of God. Let's pray. I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. If at any point in the prayer you've not yet chosen to follow this King Jesus, I just want you to kind of open your eyes and look at me. That'll be your confession of faith, and I will join with you in prayer. And everybody else can stay heads bowed. Thank you, God. Thank you for diving down to catch me, to catch us. We confess that we have sinned. We have failed to be the people you have called us to be. We've fallen short of our original design purpose. We ask, Lord God, for your forgiveness. And we receive that forgiveness today. Help us to know and feel the forgiveness that you give us. Save us. Make us your own. For those of you who might be feeling the weight of the world right now, who have lost the fire, those who are suffering and can't find joy, those who are struggling with division and want to just really rededicate themselves this morning to being the people of God, to living a life for Christ, devoted to his service and filled with his joy. I just want to invite you to give me a quick look or a nod. I actually place myself alongside you this morning. I could use a new fire. Lord God, we want to renew our decision today to make you Lord of our lives. We want to refocus our minds and our hearts on you, on your cross, on your love. 
please reinvigorate our faith. Restore our hope and joy. Reanimate our love. And now, just in the spirit of unity for us all, I'd like us to pray together. If you know the words, please say them with me. And if not, that's okay. Just follow along in your thoughts and spirits. But if you know the words, say them with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, thank you guys for inviting me into your space to be here with you this morning. Be blessed and be a blessing. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.